Turning you back to Exodus chapter 16, please. Food from heaven is what we have entitled a message this morning. Let's just unite our heart together a short word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee again for Thy presence. We thank the Lord we're able to sing our praises unto Thee. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Oh, we thank Thee for that name that is sweet, that name that is above every name. We pray, Lord, as we come into this passage that Thou would teach us more of Christ. O God, we pray that Thou would instruct us by Thy Spirit that would settle our hearts, even under the Word. Lord, that Thou would do us every one good today. Lord, to that end, I pray Thou would fill us with Thy Spirit and with power. Give us, Lord, words that must and shall prevail. Give us the anointing of the Holy Ghost upon our ministry today. And do every soul good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn to the end of the chapter 16, you will notice that Moses receives a commandment from the Lord. Look at the words of verse 32. This is the thing which the Lord commandeth, filling no more of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought forth you, you forth from the land of Egypt. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot, put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And men and women, as we get into this passage, will not be surprised that that commandment was given, even to Moses at this time. A container full, an omer to be exact, was to be laid up to be kept for the succeeding generations. And the purpose was that it would be a reminder. A reminder and a constant testimony of God's adequate daily care for the nation of Israel throughout the wilderness. It was Matthew Henry, that great commentator, who said, God's miracles and mercies are to be had in everlasting remembrance for our encouragement to trust in Him at all times. Because what we're about to look at is a miracle from the hand of God. It was an answer, of course, to their murmuring that questioned God's daily care for His people. And God rebuked their faithlessness by showing them He could provide whatever they needed, wherever they were. He could cause the wind to send the quails. You look back at the words of verse 12. It says that even ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread. Ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass that at even the quails came up and covered the camp. Now the quails were a small, tiny bird. And God caused the wind to cause the quails who were migrating northward to come the way of the camp of Israel. And they flew so low, maybe exhausted, and they come near the ground that the children of Israel could have them. The God we worship today is in control of the very nature and the very winds. But the manna was sent from heaven. And just consider verse 35 before we get into the detail of this miracle. It says, And the children of Israel did eat manna forty years until they came to a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came onto the borders of the land of Canaan. Counting the number of Sabbaths, 
The Lord sent enough manna for the people for 14,600 days or 2,080 weeks or 480 months for every night for 40 years. The Israelites went to bed with no bread in their dwellings. But they could rest well knowing that on the dew in the morning God would again supply what was needed. One divine said this, it was surer and safer in God's storehouse than in their own and would hence come to them sweeter and fresher for 40 years. It's given three names in the scriptures. It's called manna. It's also called bread. And in the book of Psalms, we'll come across later, it's called angel's food. Manna would remind us of the ignorance of the human mind about the workings of God. Bread reminds us of the basic need of the Israelites. And the angel's food speaks to us surely of its heavenly source. There are some rules about it. Some rules us as to how it would be collected. Look at verse 4. It was the everyday rule. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them. Every day. That meant six days a week. Verse 26. Six days ye shall gather it, but in the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. And you look at verse 21. Their rule was they were to gather it early. They gathered it every morning. Every man according to his eating, and when the sun waxed hot, it melted. So if they lay in their bed, and they wanted to get the manna after the sun had come up, they were too late. And men and women, if you just take those little rules, they're good rules for God's people to this very day. When it comes to the Word of God, to feasting upon Christ, Gather it every day. I trust you're not waiting for the Sabbath just, but take it every day. And do it early. Before you face the world and before you face the business of every day, it's good to be able to gather it early. Let's consider then the manna as a glorious type of the Savior for lost mankind, even the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Won't you notice the provision of the manna? When we think of the giving of this manna, That which grips our attention, surely, first and foremost, is the grace of God. We note that the people of Israel were given to the murmuring heart and to that fearful spirit, that somehow God had called them out of Egypt and had sent his servant Moses, and after two months, he was going to have them perish. Their murmurings were to reach the courtroom of God's heaven. You'll notice what the Lord says in verse 12. I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. I'm not going to go back on what we preached on last Lord's Day morning. But the Lord hears the murmurings. And the Lord heard the murmurings of Israel. Would the swift judgment of the Lord therefore be seen to fall upon them for doubting his word and for doubting his power? No, because verse 4 says, Behold! I will send, not wrath and judgment, but I will send, I will rain bread from heaven for you. 
That's the grace of God. That can only speak of the grace of God, the goodness of God, as he pitied his people. And we're under no doubt it was God who sent this provision. This is the God that was to meet with Moses and Sinai, who said, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. It can be seen that the giving of the manna was a miracle. By the rich grace and mercy of God, these people were to be supplied with what would meet them at the point of their need. Their hunger would be satisfied. It would be provision that will last all the days of their wilderness wanderings. Indeed, we consider the manner in which the psalmist refers to, as I made reference earlier on, Psalm 78. We're in no doubt that it was a great miracle. Psalm 78, verse 24. It said, it says there, and had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. It was a great miracle. This manna was the very corn of heaven sent by God, given to the people who were undeserving. Moreover, it was something which the people could see the glory of God. And verse 7, look at the start of the verse. And in the morning, then ye shall see the glory of the Lord. For that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that ye murmur against us? The miracle bread would come down from the open windows of heaven in the morning time. It would lie within their camp. Uh, manna rained down upon them. Not the judgment, not the wrath of God as it happened upon the cities of the plain. And the people would see the glory of God displayed in this whole affair. And in the provision of this manna. And surely we see the resemblance of the mercy of God in his wonderful plan of redemption. When the whole of mankind in fallen Adam's loins stood before God lost, ruined, undone, one leprous mass of misery and sin, the mercy of God was promised. In Genesis chapter 3, when the fullness of time was come, the Savior would descend from the very courts of heaven. God in his mercy was to send heaven's very best so that sinful, undeserving, lost mankind would have provision for their soul's salvation. God would have been just men and women if he had allowed all of mankind, rebellious as it was, to go through the journey of life and at the end of it all perish in a lost sinner's hell. He would have been just. But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us was to give us the gift of redemption in the person of his only begotten Son and the blessed Son of God coming down from heaven, becoming God manifest in the flesh can only be described as a miracle from God's hand just as the manna was. That he should be born of woman and yet not be tainted by man in any shape or form that he should come amongst men as one who said, I am the bread of life. That he should be the one in the same time, be God and also man. You know, it's also interesting to consider the very timing in which this manna was first given. Uh, I draw your uh, thought and your eyes to Numbers chapter 11. 
because there's account uh, given of it there. Numbers 11 verse 9 says, And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. When the dew came upon the camp in the night, it was dark all around, in other words. When this soft shower was to reach the earth and was left obvious to the sight of the people when the dawn broke and when the sun began to arise and burnt off the dew which veiled it. And so spiritually can we not apply that to the coming of Christ because the Lord was to come when there was a cloud of, of darkness veiled this earth. And when he first comes to the sinner's heart, what does he find? He finds a black mass of grievous sin. For many, the Lord lies hidden in the Word, in the church ordinances. For the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Or what we read in Isaiah chapter 53, when we shall see Him, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. And the fullness and the beauty that there is in Christ is not seen until the Son of Righteousness arises with healing in His wings and the real treasure is seen. Just like the manna when the Lord came, his glory was witnessed. Isn't that what John details for us in the opening verses of his gospel? He says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the giving of Christ, God has provided the only means of our salvation through this weary journey of life and the provision that you need. Uh, for the greater journey, that is, out into God's eternity, is given, is provided in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The house of God is a means of grace. It's where God's people are fed spiritually. It's where the sinner, the unconverted, are to hear words whereby they must be saved. To have eternal life, then you must look to the very Christ of God, to the bread of heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And my question is, have you availed yourself of that provision? Here's God's provision for his people in the wilderness. The manna. But you know, we want to give a little closer attention to it by noticing some properties of the manna. For when that manna was first to appear in the camp, the nation were confounded as to what it was. And that's why they're found speaking of it in terms of manna. You look at verse 15, and really verse 15 is in a sense of a question. If you have a good marginal Bible, it'll bring it out to you. When the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, it is manna. Now look at the margin. They said, what is this? That's a question. Is it a portion? You can just uh, visage them going out on this first morning. And the, the Jew has left it and there's this small white substance. They say, what is this? For they wist not what it was. But when we take a closer look at this gift from heaven, then we learn some of its properties. And the Holy Spirit has given us details about the manna which are worthy of our attention. Notice, it was, it was something that was small. It was counted as very small. It was insignificant. Verse 14. 
When the dew that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoar frost on the ground, just like a tiny little seed on the bare earth. There may have been those who would have jeered at it. There may have been the proud heart that would uh, have lifted, been lifted up and asking, was this all that heaven's storehouses could afford and could offer to us? It was so unpromising looking to be able to feed and satisfy so large a number of people. You know, we just pause because how similar to when the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. He came in all lowliness, just a small, insignificant babe that was born in a lowly place. There was nothing of honor, nothing of glory about him. He was brought up in lowly Nazareth. He merely took the form of a lowly servant. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But dear friend, it was through, and it is by his humility that he was prepared to take upon him the garment of flesh, so that he might clothe you in his brightest glory. He lived and died in shame, contempt, and pain, that you guilty one might reign in all the beauty and glories of the highest heaven. There is a comparison with the nana. You see something else about it? I've read it there in verse 14. It was round. It was small, yes. But it was a round thing. The hands which first handled it found it at no starting point. Or no finishing point. Boys and girls will know what a circle is. It's round. No start, no finish. Something which was without beginning or end. It was complete in and of itself. Does that again not lead us to consider even the Lord, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, the one who said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending? There is no one who can go back to the point of his beginning, for he is eternal. We do not accept, like the Arians who riddled the Irish Presbyterian Church prior to the revival in 1859, that the Lord had a beginning. God had to deal with heresy before he blessed. We denounce as heresy the belief of the modern-day Unitarians and the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church that the Son of God had an existence prior to his birth. Had, had no existence. That's what they would teach. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. The opening verses you will come across. One by the name of Melchizedek. He can be looked upon as an appearance of the Son of God. Or at the very least. Symbolically a type of Christ. Depends what school of thought you're in. But notice what is said of Melchizedek, verse 3. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Neither beginning of days nor end of life. The Lord is without beginning of days 
nor end of life. Having died unto sin once, he liveth unto God. He remaineth forever the same. And in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The roundness of the manna, it speaks of completeness. It speaks of eternality of our Savior. He is perfect. There's nothing that needs to be added to him. He is the perfect God man. So we've seen that it's small. We've seen that it's round. You'll notice in verse 31 something else about its character. Because it says, And the house of Israel called the name of thereof manna, and it was like coriander seed, white. There's the color of it. It covered the face of the earth. It stood out in bright contrast to the dust and to the dearth of the wilderness and the dew upon which it fell. Its spotless color proved its descent must have been from heaven for nothing that defileth shall ever enter in. The comparison with the Lord is no stretch of the imagination for everything about him was clothed with the purity of heaven. He was the very righteousness of God embodied in human flesh. He came, he walked upon this earth as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God in whom there was no sin, there was no guile. It could be no other way for he who had come to save souls from sin must give the offering of a sinless soul. Dear friend, would you not desire to be holy and blameless before God you know, you can be if you receive Christ Jesus as your Savior in His righteousness, as many have done so, and are saved. There's another little characteristic that is found also in that verse 31, that is, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. It was sweet. It's no mistake that the manna here is likened to the sweetness of honey, for so it is with Christ. To everyone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, His word is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And you all know what honey tastes like. You don't need sugar. Sweet. I'd like you to turn over to the Song of Solomon. Just after the book of Ecclesiastes. Because this is what the Shulamite has taken up with. Song of Solomon chapter 5 is where I'm bringing you to. And in this chapter she gives a description of her beloved. Because this is what the daughters of Jerusalem are, are saying to her. What is thy beloved more than any other? Could you tell me what's so different about him? Verse 9 there's the question. O oh, thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? And what follows that question's been asked, those questions been asked is that inch by inch the Shulamite gives a description of her beloved. From the very crown of his head to his feet. There's no cameras in those days. There's no iPhones. And so she uses nature. My beloved is white and ruddy. The chiefest, the chosen one among 10,000. His head 
is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. See? Picture is nature. Don't need a camera. And bit by bit, she gives a description of her beloved until you come to the very last piece in verse 16. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. They tasted the manna, and they found that it was not only nourishing, but it was sweet. And so is every child of God. We have tasted and seen that he is good. To the spiritually hungry soul, there's only one who can satisfy there's only one who can fill that hunger, that void in your heart and your life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist exhorts it, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, that you would feast upon the assurances of the living word, that you would feast upon the bread of heaven, the assurance of knowing your sins forgiven and pardoned, of knowing that all guilt is fully and forever removed. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. All debts are fully and forever paid. And the assurance that you're on that way to that eternal and that heavenly land. That's one of the sweetest things for sinful man to be at peace with God. To have the smile of approval upon you. To have that indwelling Spirit of God guiding, strengthening, teaching, comforting you. To have the presence of the Lord with you. Would it not be sweet for you to realize that ministering angels that camp around about you, those are the assurances that can be yours through Christ and that the believer knows even this morning. You know why? Because Christ is the sweet manna. He's found in the Old Testament. He's found in this very passage. For all the properties of the manna are the properties of Christ, the characteristics of the Savior. There's one final truth that I want to bring out this morning concerning the manna. That is the preaching of it. You see, Lord, in his mercy in sending this manna was to give instructions to the people concerning it. We might suggest the manna was a sermon in itself. The manna is preaching. What does it preach? Look at the words of verse 5. It shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Verse 26. Six days ye shall gather it, but in the seventh day which is the Sabbath in it, there shall be none. Verse 29. See, for the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. It preaches, remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. There's what it's preaching. The Lord had directed his servants that he would send twice as much on the sixth day of the week. So that they had plenty and they wouldn't need to go out and search and gather it on the Sabbath day. And of course there's always those. There's nothing new under the sun. There's those that refuse to heed the word of Moses. And they went out searching. Just like today. 
Man and woman hears the manna and it preaches the Lord's day. They remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That was a truth implanted upon their hearts and upon their minds. And remember this. This is Exodus 16. You don't come across the commandments as they're given on the tables of law until Exodus 20. But the law of God was already known. The Sabbath day was already kept even by Adam and Eve. The Sabbath was to be special. It was to be different from the rest of the week. And to that end, it would prove to benefit no one to go out on the Sabbath to look for the manna. For none would fall, none would be gathered. There would be no need for them to seek the manna on the Lord's day. They would have double the portion given to them on the sixth day. And the miracle was, while every other morning it would stink, stink, if they kept it over on the sixth day, it wouldn't stink. On the seventh day, it was fresh as ever. That's a miracle. That was the law of God concerning the Sabbath. And it wouldn't change the whole time that they journeyed in the wilderness. And I tell you, it's a law that's still in vogue today. It hasn't changed. The manna still preaches the message to us. God requires his one day in seven to be kept holy. And so, young person, don't be kicking the football in the Lord's day. Don't be looking to watch the match on the Lord's day. That's a special day. Parents as well, of course. No matter what the commercial pressures might be in life, and I know there are many, no matter how, may, how busy life may be, God's Word still proclaims to us, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and man will learn to his detriment, to his horror. There's nothing to profit. There's nothing to gain by laboring on the Lord's day. For from the seed of the Sabbath work springs up a harvest of soul-piercing woes. Preaches something else, you know. It preaches the sufficiency that is found in Christ. Look at the words of verse 16 this time. This is a thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating. And homer for every man according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. When it did meet it with an homer, he that gathered much had nothing over, he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every morning, every man according to his eating. Whether it was much gathered, there was found to be none over. Yet for another who gathered less, they weren't found to be lacking any. Just think of the amount mentioned there. And Homer for every man. For those millions of people. And Homer for each person. That's equivalent conservatively. If you take maybe two million people. And I think maybe there probably was more. But take it as two million. That means there's four and a half tons every day to be gathered. And the farmer will know what a ton is and country people will appreciate that. Over a million tons gathered annually by Israel and it continued for 40 years. 
And it came to where the people were. They didn't have the journey. It was right at hand. A miracle of seismic proportions. You see, there's a sufficiency in it to meet every soul as there is in the gospel of saving grace, as there is in the merit of the Savior's precious blood. Christ came to where we were. Child of God, He came to where you were in your sin, lifting you by His grace, meeting you at the point of your soul's need. Whatever the case, whatever the condition of the guilty sinner, the blood is sufficient to cover all sins. His grace is sufficient to reach down and lift us from the dunghill of life and to save our souls. There's sufficient power in the Savior's blood to meet the needs of your soul and you will find that when you come by faith that he will provide your every need daily and you'll have blessings which are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. He gave new manna for every new day. And you know the Lord gives grace and rich blessing for every new day of life's journey. You've... uh, Matters this week you have to attend to. You you have a big barrier in front of you, a difficulty that has to be overcome. Listen, God will give you new grace tomorrow morning for that. And Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning. The grace today will not be sufficient for tomorrow, but he gives every day new grace. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 brings it right home to us. When we're reading about the manna, we're thinking of Christ. Verse 48. Here's what he taught at the feast. He said, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is a bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He even brings him to Calvary. He speaks of his death. He's sufficient for the whole journey. All that you'll need is found in Christ. When time's crumbs are no more needed, eternity's full feast begins. Praise his name. One final note. The people were instructed by Moses not to leave it until the next day. It preached the urgency as found in the gospel. The words of 2 Corinthians 6 and 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You look at the words of verse 19. It says, and Moses said, Let no man leave of it till the morning. They were to feast upon that which they had gathered the same day. And men and women, I would exhort, I would encourage you not to leave off the gospel until the morning. That's a powerful gospel text, isn't it? Don't you leave off the application of Christ and the gospel till the morning, till another day, till next Lord's day. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Don't leave it off until the morning. You've heard of Christ who is the bread of life and the manna for your needy soul. I wonder, will you not partake of him now if you haven't done so? And be saved.
food from heaven. May God help each one of us to partake well of that living bread. May God bless his word to each of our souls for his own name's sake. 324, that's just, uh, 394, sorry, just to uh, close our, this part of our meeting. Let's just sing it. O Christ, in thee my soul hath found, found in thee alone the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. Now none but Christ can satisfy. You see, the man has satisfied the nation of Israel. As only Christ can satisfy your soul and your need today. 394, let's stand as we sing it. Christ in thee my soul at foot and found in thee.
we thank Thee today for the person of Christ. We thank the Lord for God's gift to sinful lost mankind. O God, we praise Thee that there's none but Christ can satisfy. There's none other name for me. Praise the Lord for each one that has tasted and seen that he is good. Lord, help us to feed well on the bread of life every day. And we pray, Lord, for those yet unsaved, that, Lord, today might come and partake of thy wonderful salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus. Bless those that are unable to remain at this time. Go before each one, we pray, and abide with those that will come to remember the Lord's death. O God, do our souls good even further, for we pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.